Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Well, I have moved out of the farm, I still have a lot of things to settle down, and, well, gotta wait a bit until I get my website back up, but if you guys continue to support me like you do, and thank you very much, then that's happening this month, which is just excellent. I'm so happy for everyone who's donated, and if you want to help us get our website back, then just write us to theeasternborder@gmail.com. We are just about 50 euros short. So if you can help us that way, it would be amazing. Or if you can just become our patrons so that we can do it from the next month's Patreon, that would be excellent too. But right now, just like I promised in my previous episode, I want to do something interesting. I want to talk about someone special. Someone that I've promised to make an episode a long time ago and I never got to it. Because, you see, you have to speak about Baron Roman von Ungern-Sternberg. Or, as we know it in culture, the Mad Baron of Mongolia. He's a really cool dude. He was born Nikolai Robert Maximilian Freiherr from Ungern-Sternberg. And this Freiherr thing, yeah, it kind of touches on to me because it means free man. My grand-grandfather was born with that same surname, which is... Yeah, touching. I don't know if we are related. I hope not, really. I honestly hope not. He's often known as just Baron Ungern. And uh, to just explain it shortly, he was an anti-communist general in the Russian Civil War that followed the kind of all of World War One, And then he became an independent warlord who, um, well, fought in Mongolia against China. He was a Baltic German, which, again is a bit weird for me personally, even though he was from Estonia. He had Estonian family ties. And he was an ultra-conservative monarchist, like one of the hardliner guys, that wanted to restore the Russian monarchy after the 1917 Russian revolutions, and he wanted to revive the Mongol Empire under the rule of the Bogd Khan. He was also attracted to Vajaraya Buddhism, I hope I pronounced it correctly, 
and he was completely mad, extremely violent, and he just did the most insane things. He was truly the mad lad of World War I and the following Civil War. He was completely insane, and he's one of the most well-known Civil War personas ever, and one of the few things that, you know, when you beat even the Soviets and Mr. Tokhachevsky in how mad you are, then you truly have achieved something. Nikolai Robert Maximilian Freiherr von Ungern-Sternberg was born in Graz, Austria, on the 10th of January 1886, which would be like in 29th of December old style, to a noble Baltic-German family. The Ungern-Sternberg family had settled in present-day Estonia during the Middle Ages, so, you know, next door to Austin Latvia. His first language was obviously German, because, you know, German crusaders and everything, but he became fluent in French, Russian, English, and Estonian, which makes sense. His mother was a German noblewoman, Sophie Charlotte from Wimpfen. Later, obviously, she changed her surname to Ungern-Sternberg. And his dad was, well, Theodor Leonhard Rudolf Freiherr von Ungern-Sternberg. He also had a bit of Hungarian roots and claimed descent from Batu Khan, Genghis Khan's grandson, which, well, played a massive role in his surviving of the Mongol Empire. If you want to learn more about Batu Khan, I recommend acquiring Dan Carlin's Wrath of the Khans series. I, I just have to plug this here because we're talking hardcore Mongolia. And when it comes to post this on Twitter, I'll tag Dan Carlin as well, because this guy's just wow. So, in 1888, his family moved to Revel, which is Tallinn now, uh, the capital of Estonia. At that time, it was the capital of the governorate of Estonia in the Russian Empire. His parents, by the way, divorced there in 1891. In 1894, his mother married the Baltic-German nobleman Oskar Anselm Hermann Freiherr von Hoingenhoine. And I am actually pretty sure that I didn't botch the German pronunciation of this one, because, well, I should probably read that one too, but I just kind of know how that's pronounced due to my own family roots. This whole thing happened in his stepdad's estate, at Hoingenhoine at Jervaktan, modern Jörkvandi, Estonia, deep in the forest, about 65 kilometers, which is about 40 miles, from Reval. During that summer, he lived on the Baltic island of Dago, now Hiyuma, which is the second largest island of Estonia, which he liked to boast had belonged to his family for over 200 years. As a small wee kiddo, Ungern Sternberg was noted for being such a ferocious bully that even the other bullies feared him. He was the guy who beat up everyone. Several parents forbade their children from playing with him as he was a terror, uncontrollable, and utterly mad. Even as a kid, he was totally a polite and nice person. Even though Mr. Ungern was well known for his love of torturing animals, and at the age of 12, he tried to strangle to death his cousin's pet owl for... No other reason than having fun by strangling an owl. Yeah, this guy was meant to be a complete sociopath and a mad lad starting from the beginning. Ungern Sternberg had extreme pride in his ancient aristocratic family, even though I can probably boast the same levels of aristocracy as he can, but yeah, just bear with me. And later, this mad baron wrote that his family had over the centuries 
quote, never taken orders from the working classes. And it was outrageous that, quote, dirty workers who've never had any servants on their own, but still think they can command, end quote, should have any say in the ruling of the vast Russian Empire. Ungern Sternberg, I'm just gonna call him US at this point. Well, that's a bad thing. Wow, well, I just understood that. I'm gonna call him US nonetheless. Uh, so if I mention the US, that's Ungern Sternberg, because why not? Okay, so, U.S., although proud of his German origin, identified himself very strongly with the Russian Empire. When asked whether his family had distinguished itself in Russian service, U.S. proudly answered, 72 killed in wartime. U.S. believed that return to monarchies in Europe was possible with the aid of the cavalry people, meaning Russian Cossacks, Buryats, Tatars, Mongols, Kyrgyz, Kalmyks, etc. In 1883, U.S. surveyed mountain ranges for the Tiflis or Tbilisi Geographical Society. In 1898, his dad was sort of kind of briefly imprisoned for a fraud, and in 1899 was committed to the local insane asylum. What fun! From 1900 to 1902, U.S. attended the Nikki I Gymnasium in Reval, now Tallinn. His school records show that he was an unruly, bad-tempered young man who was constantly in trouble with his teachers because of frequent fights with other cadets and breaking other school rules. Smoking in bed, and he's like about, what, 15 right now? Growing long hair, leaving with permission, and all sorts of other things, including beating up other people who studied at the school. All of this finally led the principal of the school writing a letter in February 1905 to his stepdad and mom to ask them to basically get rid of the little kid on, like, voluntary terms or he will get expelled because, literally, how much can you take this one little brat beating up everyone in his school? So, in 1905, he left the school to join the fighting in eastern Russia during the Russo-Japanese War, which I definitely need to make an episode about. However, it's quite unclear whether or not he actually participated in the operations against Japanese or whether or not he actually fought, because no one knows whether or not all of his military operations had ceased before his arrival in Manchuria. Although he was awarded the Russo-Japanese War Medal in 1913, even though it's quite fucking funny, the fact that you get awarded medals for a war so blatantly lost and mangled. As you might have heard from, well, my buddies Michael Duncan's, episodes on the Russian Revolution, in 1905, Russia just exploded into a revolution. And his Estonian peasants, um, note on his, went on a bloody, bloody vengeance against the Baltic German nobility, which owned most of the land there, as did in Latvia. Aristocrats were lynched and their estates burned down. Including, by the way, and this also ties into this, uh, the one that was owned by Edvard Sliatskal, master whom he killed personally, so this is the origin of the Coral Castle episode. Again, you know, we have those and other things on this show as well. But, yeah, basically everything and all this revolution saw the complete destruction of the Yervakant estate, his stepdad, and these were huge traumas to Ungern Sternberg, the US, who saw the, all this destruction as confirming his belief that the Estonian peasants who worked in his family's lands were all, quote, rough, untortured, because you need to torture them more, constantly angry, hating everybody and everything without understanding why. Well, I can tell you why. If you beat them up, then the peasants will just not work. If you are a pile of garbage, no one will want to work for you. In 1906, 
Ungern was transferred to service in the Pavlovsk military school in St. Petersburg as a cadet of basically standard ranks. As an army cadet, he proved to be a better student than he ever was as a naval cadet, and he actually studied his course material, which is quite surprising, coming from this guy, but in the words of the historian Adam Palmer, he was a mediocre student at the very best. During the same period, US had become obsessed with the occult, and I mean seriously obsessed, even more so than Tukhachevsky, and he was especially interested in Buddhism. His cousin, Count Hermann von Kaiserling, who later knew him well, wrote that the Baron, the mad lad himself, was very curious from his teenagers onward with Tibetan and Hindu philosophy, and often spoke of the mystical powers possessed by geometrical symbols. Kaiserling called U.S. one of the most metaphysically and occultly gifted men I have ever met, and truly, completely, believed that the Baron was a clairvoyant who could read the minds of the people around him. Later in Mongolia, Ungern became a Buddhist but did not leave the Lutheran faith. Imagine how that would work out, right? There is a kind of a widespread view that he was viewed by the Mongols as an incarnation of the god of war, the figure of Jamsaran in Tibetan and Mongol folklore. Although many Mongols have believed him to be a deity, or at the very least a reincarnation of Genghis Khan himself. Yes, this is a man who never abandoned his Lutheran faith, merged it with Buddhism, both of which he was fanatically attached to, and who has the claim of being basically a reincarnation of both Genghis Khan and Buddha. We're talking this level of crazy. After graduating, he served as officer in the Eastern Siberia Corps at the 1st Argunsky Department and then in the 1st Amursky Cossack Regiments, where he became enthralled with the lifestyle of nomadic peoples, such as the, well, guess what, Mongols. Ungern had specifically asked to be stationed with a Cossack regiment in Asia, as he wanted to learn more about Asiatic and Asian culture, a request that was obviously granted due to his noble birth. U.S. was completely notorious for his extremely heavy drinking and his exceptionally weird moods. He just fought everyone that he could possibly get his hands on. In one of his many, many brawls, his face was scarred when the officer that he fought struck him with a sword, leaving him with a distinctive facial scar. It has been claimed now that the sword blow that caused the scar also caused brain damage that was basically the root of his massive insanity. However, a special study from the Russian Academy of Sciences, well, at least in the good times, revealed that U.S. was not mentally insane, although he definitely seemed to be like that. Those who knew him well described him as very drawn towards Eastern culture, as he was very fascinated by Asian cultures, specifically those of the Mongols. At the same time, Ungerd was an excellent horseman who earned the respect of Mongols, again, because of his skill at riding and fighting from a horse and for being equally adept at using both his gun and his sword. In 1913, at his request, he transferred to the reserves. Ungerd moved to Outer Mongolia to assist the Mongols in their struggle for independence from China, but Russian officials prevented him from fighting on the side of the Mongolian troops. He arrived in the town of Khovd in western Mongolia and served as an outer staff officer in the Cossack Guard Regiment at the Russian consulate. On the 19th of July 1914, U.S. joined frontline forces as part of the 2nd Turn 34th Regiment of Cossack troops stationed on the Austro-Hungarian frontier in Galicia. 
This mad lad took part in the Russian offensive on East Prussia. From 1915 to 1916, he also participated in rear action raids on German troops by the L.N. Punin Cavalry Special Task Force. Ungern served in the Nechinsk Regiment. Throughout the war on the Eastern Front, he gained a reputation as an extremely brave but completely reckless and totally mentally unstable officer with zero fear of death and seemed most happy leading cavalry charges or being in the thick of combat. He was decorated with a lot of military awards. Orders of St. George of the 4th grade, St. Vladimir of the 4th grade, St. Anne of the 3rd grade, and St. Stanislaus of the 3rd grade. Despite his many awards, he was eventually discharged from one of his command positions for attacking another officer and a hall porter during a drunken rage, no surprise here, in October 1916, which altogether led to his being court-martialed and sentenced to two months in prison because he beat them up so fucking bad. General Pyotr Wrangel mentions Unger's determination in his memoirs, by the way. After his release from prison in January 1917, Ungern was transferred to the Caucasian theater of the conflict where Russia was fighting against the Ottoman Empire. The February Revolution that ended the rule of the House of Romanov was an extremely weird, bitter blow to the monarchist U.S., who saw the revolution as the beginning of the end of Russia. In the Caucasus, U.S. first met the Cossack captain Georgi Semenyov, who later was one of the most well-known Russian anti-communist warlords in Siberia. In April 1917, near Urmia, Iran, Ungern, together with Semyonov, started to organize a volunteer army military unit of local Assyrian Christians. The Ottoman government had waged an Assyrian genocide in an attempt to exterminate the Assyrian minority, which led to thousands of Assyrians fleeing to the Russian lines. U.S. and Semyonov conceived of a scheme under which the two would organize and lead Assyrian troops to serve an example for the Russian army, which was being demoralized by the revolutionary mood. Under his command, the Assyrians went on to score some minor victories over the Turks, but their local contribution to Russia's war effort was extremely limited, as, you know, there, there just weren't that many of them. Afterwards, the Assyrian scheme led Semyonov to the idea of placing Buryat troops in Siberia. The Kerensky government at the time gave its approval to Semyonov's plans, and U.S. soon headed east to join his nice little combat buddies in trying to raise a Buryat regiment. After the Bolshevik-led October Revolution in 1917, Semyonov and Ungern declared their allegiance to the Romanovs and vowed to fight the revolutionaries. In late 1917, Ungern, Semyonov, and five Cossacks peacefully disarmed a group of about 1,500 pro-Red combatants on a railway station in Manchuria on the Far Eastern Railway in China, near the Russian border. For a time, the station in Manchuria was a stronghold of Semyonov and Ungern in their preparations for war in Transbaikal, or across the Baikal regions of Russia. They started to enroll troops in a special Manchurian regiment, which became kind of a source and a nucleus for anti-communist forces led by Semyonov. After the white troops defeated the Reds on a section of the FER line in Russia, Semyonov appointed Ungern commandant of the troops stationed in Daurya, a railway station in a strategic position east-southeast of Lake Baikal. Semyonov and Ungern, though fervently anti-Bolshevik, were not quite typical of the figures to be found in the leadership of the white movement as their mad plans differed from those of the main white leaders. Semyonov refused to recognize the authority of Admiral Alexander Kolchak, uh, who deserves an episode on his own, the nominal leader of the whites in Siberia. 
Instead, he acted independently and was kind of supported by the Japanese with arms and money. For white leaders like Kolchak and Denikin, who believed in a Russia strong and indivisible, this represented high treason. Ungern was nominally subordinated to Semyonov, but also very much often acted independently. Kolchak was a conservative, but notably not a monarchist, and he promised that the victory of the whites, after that he reconvened the Constituent Assembly disbanded by the Bolsheviks in January 1918, which would then declare the future of Russia, including the question of whether or not to restore monarchy. US, to the contrary, believed that the monarchs were accountable only to God, and the monarchy was the political system that God had chosen for Russia, and so it was self-evident that it should be restored the way that it has existed before the October Manifesto of 1905. For US, the opinions of the people of Russia were completely irrelevant, as monarchs were not accountable to the people. Because of his successfully military operations in Hailar and Daurya, Ungern received the rank of the Major General. Semyonov entrusted him with forming military units to battle Bolsheviks. They enrolled Buryats and Mongols in their national military units. In Daurya, Ungern formed the Volunteer Asiatic Cavalry Division, reinforced his military station in Daurya, creating a kind of fortress from which his troops launched attacks on the Red Forces. Under his rule, Daurya became well known as a Torture center. Oh boy, this is gonna get fun. Filled with the bones of dozens of his victims who were executed because of accusations of being regs or thieves. His chief executioner had been one Kolner Lorenz, but in Mongolia, Ungern had himself executed him because he lost US's trust under unclear circumstances, because no one knows what happened in the madman's head. Like many other white units, Ungern's troops used requisitions, quote-unquote, as a source of their supply. They examined trains passing through Dauria to Manchuria. The confiscations did not significantly diminish the supplies of Kolchak's forces, but private and Chinese merchants lost a lot of their property. In 1919, taking advantage of the weakness of Russia's government caused by the revolutions in the Civil War, the Chinese government, established with the members of the Anhui military party, sent troops led by the general Xu Shuzheng to join Outer Mongolia to China and end its Anhui party, which was supported by Japan. Indications of the Japan-inspired Chinese occupation to Outer Mongolia have not yet been confirmed by the documents, but that's only because the documents are still considered top secret. After the fall of the Anhui party rule in China, Chinese soldiers in Mongolia found themselves effectively abandoned. They rebelled against their commanders and plundered and killed Mongols and foreigners and everyone that they could get their sights on. Some of the Chinese troops during the occupation with were Sahar, Chahar, Mongols from Inner Mongolia, who had been the major cause of animosity between the Outer Mongols, Halhas, and the Inner Mongols. As part of his plans, U.S. traveled to Manchuria and China, which happened from February to September of 1919, where he established contacts with monarchist circles and also made preparations for the Semyonov to meet the Manchurian warlord marshal Zhang Zuolin as the old marshal. In July 1919, Ungern married the Manchurian princess Ji in an orthodox ceremony in Harbin. The princess was given the name of Yelena Pavlovna. She and Ungern communicated in English, their only common language. The marriage was basically a political scam, as Ji was a princess and a relative of General Zhang Huivu, the commander of Chinese troops at the western end of the Chinese Manchurian Railway and the governor of Hailar.
Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of the Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at Rusansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code Eastern Border for a discount on us. Remember, head over to Rusansov.com and happy shopping. If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to Patreon.com or our website, theeasternborder.lv, to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Discord. And, as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. After Kolchak's defeat at the hands of the Red Army and the subsequent decision of Japan to withdraw its expeditionary troops from Transbaikal, Semyonov, unable to withstand the pressure of Bolshevik forces, planned a retreat to Manchuria. Ungern, however, saw this as an opportunity to implement his monarchist plan. On the August 7, 1920, he broke his allegiance to Semyonov and transformed his Asiatic cavalry division into a guerrilla detachment. Ungern's troops started to move towards the border of Outer Mongolia. They crossed the northern border of Outer Mongolia on the 1st of October 1920, and they moved southeast. Having crossed the Mongolian border, Ungern moved westwards to the Mongolian capital of Urga, officially Nisel Khure, now Ulaanbaatar, where he entered into negotiations with the Chinese occupying forces. All of his demands, including the disarmament of the Chinese troops, were completely rejected. On the 27th of October, and again on the 4th of October, Ungern's troops assaulted Urga, but suffered disastrous, insane losses. After the defeat, his forces retreated to the upper currents of the Kerlian River, in the Sestenhang Aimang, a district ruled by the princes with the title Sestenhan in the eastern outer Mongolia. He was supported by Mongols who sought independence from the Chinese occupation, especially the spiritual and secular leaders of Mongols, the Bogdhan, who secretly sent Urgen his blessing for expelling Chinese from Mongolia. The Chinese had tightened their control of Outer Mongolia by then by the strictly regulating Buddhist services in monasteries and imprisoning Russians and Mongols, whom they considered separatists. According to the memoirs of M. G. Tarnovsky, the Asiatic division numbered 1,460 men, with the Chinese garrison was 7,000 strong. 
The Chinese had the advantage in artillery and machine guns and had built a network of trenches and in and around Urga. At his camp, U.S. imposed ferocious discipline on Russian soldiers to prevent desertion and demoralization. He literally beat a lot of them up. Ungern's troops began moving from their camp to Urga in the 31st January. On the 2nd of February, they battled for control of Chinese front lines and secured parts of Urga. His detachment, led by B.P. Rezukin, captured Chinese frontline fortifications near Small Madachan and Big Madachan settlements in the southern vicinities of Urga. During the battle, Ungern's special detachment of Tibetans, Mongols, Buryats and Russians rescued the Bogd Khan from house arrest and transported him through the Bogd Ul to Manyushi Monastery. And these names make no sense, but they are in the sources, so please forgive me. All the same time, another detachment moved to the mountains east of Urga. On the 3rd of February, he gave his soldiers a respite. Borrowing a tactic from Genghis Khan himself, whose incarnation he supposedly was, he ordered his troops to light a large number of campfires in the hills surrounding Urga and to use them as reference points for Razukin's detachment. That made the town appear to be surrounded by an overwhelming force. Early on the 4th of February, Ungern launched an assault on the Chinese white barracks from the east, captured them and divided his forces into two parts. First launched a major assault on the remaining Chinese positions in the explosives and improvised battering rams. After breaking in, a general slaughter set in, with murder and everything, as both sides fought with literally sabers, pikes and other sharp objects. After the capture of Maimancheng, Ungern joined his troops attacking the Chinese troops at the consular settlement. After a Chinese counterattack, Ungern's soldiers retreated a short distance northeast and then launched another attack with the support of another Cossack and a Mongolian detachment, which, on their own, began an attack from the northeast and northwest, which ruined his plans completely. However, Ungern's troops managed to beat everyone back into order and gradually move westwards in Urga, pursuing retreating Chinese soldiers. The capital was finally taken on the evening of the 4th of February. Chinese civil administrators and military commanders abandoned their soldiers and fled northwards from Urga in 11 cars on the night of 4th February. Chinese troops fled northward on the 4th and 5th February. They massacred any Mongolian civilians they encountered along the road from the Urga and Russian border. Because why not? Complete massacre. Best stuff ever. Russian settlers who supported the Reds moved from Urga together with the fleeing Chinese troops. During the capture of Urga, the Chinese lost about 1,500 men, and Ungern's forces suffered about 60 casualties. After the battle, Ungern's troops began plundering Chinese stores, killing Russian Jews who were living in Urga, as the Cossacks had also been set against Jews. Ungern himself ordered Jews to be killed, except for those who had notes from him sparing their lives. It has been basically estimated that by surviving archival documents and memoirs of that 43 to 50 Jews were killed during Ungern's stay in Mongolia, about 5 to 6% of all those executed under his orders. A bunch of days later, the looting by his troops was stopped by Ungern, but his secret police bureau, led by Colonel Leonid Shipailo, continued searching for the Reds. Between 11th and the 13th of March, Ungern captured a fortified Chinese base at Kuar, between the Ostol Ul and Chorin Bogd Ul mountains. I hope I can pronounce this correctly. Oh, this is all south of Urga. Ungern had about 900 troops and the Chinese defenders about 1,500. After capturing Kuar, Chuar, Choir, uh, I'll just say Huar, Ungern returned to Urga. His detachments consisting of Cossacks and Mongols moved southward to Zamin Ud. 
literally with a bunch of oohs there. A frontier settlement and another Chinese base. The defending Chinese soldiers abandoned Zamin Ood without a fight. With the remaining Chinese troops having retreated to northern Mongolia near Hyaktia, attempted to go around Urga to the west to reach China, the Russians and the Mongols feared that they were attempting to recapture Urga. Several hundred Cossack and Mongol troops were dispatched to stop the Chinese forces, which numbered several thousand at the point. In the area of Tallinn Ulanhad Hill, near the Urga Ulyastai Road in central Mongolia, after a battle that raged from 30th of March to 2nd of April, in which more than 1,000 Chinese and approximately 100 Mongols, Russians, and Buryats were killed, these Chinese were routed and chased to the southern border of the country. Thus, Chinese forces left the Outer Mongolia, which is approximately the greatest achievement of our fucking mad baron. Ungern, Mongolian lamas and princes, brought the Bogdhan from Manjusri Monastery to Urga on the 21st of February 1921. The next day, a solemn ceremony took place to restore the Bogdhan to the throne. As a reward for ousting the Chinese from Urga, the Bogdhan granted Ungern the high hereditary title Darkhan Hoshoi Xing Wang in the decree of Han and other privileges. Other officers, lamas, and princes who had participated in these events also received high titles and awards. For seizing Urga, Ungern received from Semyonov the rank of lieutenant general. On the 22nd of February 1921, Mongolia was proclaimed an independent monarchy. Supreme power of Mongolia belonged to the Bogdhan, or the 8th Bogdgegen. According to some eyewitnesses, such as his engineer and officer Kamil Gidzi, a Polish adventurer and writer, Ferdinand Antoni Odesenowski, Ungern was the first to institute order in Urga by imposing street cleaning and sanitation, promoting religious life and tolerance in the capital and attempting to reform the economy. Osendendowski, one of the most popular Polish writers in his lifetime, at the time of his death in 1945, his overseas sales were the second highest of all the writers of Poland, had served as official in Kolchak's government and after his collapse fled to Mongolia. He became one of the Ungern's very few actual friends, and in 1922 published a best-selling book in English, quote, Beast, Men and Gods, about his adventures in Siberia and Mongolia, which remains the book by which the Ungern story is basically best known to the English-speaking world, and I highly recommend you Google that one up, because I think it's probably in the public domain at this point. The comparison of Ossendowski's diary with the, his book and documents of Mongolia reveals that his reports on Mongolia and Ungern are, well, basically largely true, except for a few stories, because, you know, you have to have some fun stories in the whole story. Osendowski was the first to describe Ungern's views in terms of theosophy, but Ungern himself had never truly been a theosophist, mad and insane as he was. Ungern did not interfere in Mongolian affairs and assisted Mongols only in some issues according to the borders of Bogdan. Russian colonists, on the other hand, suffered cruelties from Ungern's secret police bureau led by Leonid Sipailo. A lot of innocent people were tortured and killed by Sipailo and his subordinates. A list of people known to have been killed on Ungern's orders or by others on their pretext, both in Russia and Mongolia, confirms the deaths of 846 people, approximately 100 and 120 from Urga, which was about 3 to 8 percent of the total foreign colony population. A bunch of eyewitnesses consider his Asiatic Cavalry Division as a base for a future Mongolian National Army. The division consisted of national detachments such as the Chinese Regiment, Japanese Unit, various Cossack Regiments, Mongol, Buryat, Tatar, and other people's units. 
Lundgren himself stated that 16 nationalities served in his division. Dozens of Tibetans also served as part of his troops. They might have been sent by the 13th Dalai Lama with whom Ungern communicated, or the Tibetans might have belonged to the Tibetan colony on Urgan. The presence of the Japanese unit in the division is often explained as an evidence that Japan stood behind Ungern and his actions in Mongolia. Studies of their interrogations from Japanese archives reveal that they have were mercenaries serving of their own, like other nationals in the division, and that Ungern was actually kind of not managed by Japan, because not even interwar Japan was insane enough to actually support this fucking mad lad. The Bolsheviks started infiltrating Mongolia shortly after the October Revolution, long before they took control of Russian Transbaikal. In 1921, various Red Army units belonging to the Soviet Russia and to the Far East Republic invaded the newly independent Mongolia to defeat Ungern. Their forces included the Red Mongolian leader Damin Sugbachtar. I hope I pronounced it correctly. Spies and various small divisionary units went ahead to spread terror to weaken Ungern's forces. The US organized an expedition to meet these forces in Siberia and to support ongoing anti-Bolshevik rebellions. Believing that he had the unwavering popular support of locals in Siberia and Mongolia, Ungern failed to strengthen his troops properly, although he was vastly outnumbered and outgunned by the Red forces. However, he did not know that the Reds successfully crushed uprisings in Siberia, and that the Soviet economic policies had temporarily softened Lenin's new economic policy, or MEP, upon which we have like five or six episodes about. Upon Ungern's arrival in Siberia, few local peasants and Cossacks volunteered to join him. In the spring, the Asiatic Cavalry Division was divided into two brigades, one under the command of Lieutenant General Ungern and the second under Major General Ruzhekin. In May, Ruzhekin's brigade launched a raid beyond the Russian border, west of the Selenga River. Ungern's brigade left Urga and slowly moved to the Russian town of Troitsikanovsk, present-day Khakya, Buryatia. Meanwhile, the Reds moved large numbers of troops towards Mongolia from different directions. They had a tremendous advantage in equipment, which included armored cars, airplanes, rail, gunboats, ammunition, and human reserves, and the number of troops in general. As a result, Ungern was defeated in battles that took place between 11th and 13th of June as he failed to capture Troitsokovsk. Combined, Bolshevik and Red Mongol forces entered Urga on the 6th of July 1921 after very few small skirmishes with the Ungern's guard detachments. Although they had captured Urga, the Red Mongolian forces failed to defeat the main forces of the Asiatic Division, Ungern and Razukin's brigades. Ungern reported an attempt to invade Transbaikal across the Russo-Mongolian border. To rally his soldiers and the local people, he quoted an agreement with Semyonov and pointed to a supposed Japanese offensive that would support their dive, but none of them, neither Semyonov nor the Japanese, were utterly eager to assist him. After several days of rest, the Asiatic Division started its raid into Soviet territory on the 18th of July. The eyewitnesses Kamil Gzachki, another Polish guy whose name I can't pronounce, and Mikhail Tornovsky gave similar estimates to their numbers, about 3,000 men in total. Ungern's troops penetrated deep into Russian territory. The Soviets declared martial law in areas where the whites were expected, including Verkhneudinsk, now Ulanode, the capital of Buryatia. Ungern's troops captured many settlements, the northernmost being Novoshiliginsk, which they occupied on the 1st of August. By then, Ungern, the US, had understood that his offensive was ill-prepared and that he had heard about the approach of the large red forces. On the 2nd of August 1921, he began his retreat to Mongolia, where he declared his determination to fight communism. While Ungern's forces wanted to abandon the war effort, head towards Manchuria and join with the other Russian emigres, it soon became clear that Ungern had other ideas. He wanted to retreat to Tuva and then to Tibet. 
troops under both Ungern and Rezunich effectively mutinied and hatched plots to kill their respective commanders. On 17th of August, Rezukin was murdered. A day later, conspirators attempted to assassinate Ungern. His command then collapsed and his brigade broke apart. On the 20th of August, Ungern was captured by a Soviet detachment led by the guerrilla commander Pyotr Yefimovich Shchekin, who was later a member of the Cheka or the KGB or the VDK or however you want to call them. After a show trial of 6 hours and 15 minutes, on the 15th of September 1921, prosecuted by the Yevernan Yaroslavsky, Ungern was sentenced to execution by the firing squad. The sentence was carried out that night in Novonikoyevsk, now Novosibirsk. When the news of the Baron's execution reached the living Buddha, whom he worshipped, the Bogdan, he offered services to be held in temples throughout Mongolia. And that ends the story of the Mad Baron. Now I have rushed through this insanely, and I should have spoken a bit more slower, but then we would have an episode of about an hour and a half in our hands. And one day I might do this, but today, today I have to get my mom's broken leg into a hospital. So I had to rush through this with like 1.25 speed. Sorry about that, guys. But really, had no choice. However, thank you, everyone. We're going back to the history, and we're going to learn about the craziest man, Alexander Goitsev. Next time, the man whom Stalin himself considered to be a bit extreme when it comes to socialism. Thank you, and the Svidenia, Tavarishe. Fun episodes are coming in. Please do support the show. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.